Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Welcome to this week's edition of the Proper Lookout Podcast. I'm Laura D'Alessandri. I'm here with our Eden Christopher from the statutory insurance team, and I should just say our newly minted senior associate, Mr. Eden Christopher. Thank Welcome. You, Laura. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. I'm quite excited today. We've got a new case to decide, uh, not to decide, to talk about. Yep. And it's from the High Court. High Court. High big court. stuff now. This We're is in it. the big legs. This is it. The High Court is talking about a motor vehicle accident. The High Court is talking about who was the driver, and it's all very exciting. Very controversial. And now we should actually say the case name. Uh, Lee and Lee. Lee and Lee. Yep, we're going to link it below. Uh, we'll also link our case note below. Great case. Ripper case. Yeah. You want me to go through the facts? Let's do some facts and we'll go from there. So I'll let you all know what the plaintiff alleged occurred. So essentially the plaintiff, who is a, a injured boy, he's the son of a father and a mother and two brothers who are all in the same vehicle. The plaintiff's case is that the father was the driver of the vehicle. Now, the vehicle is driving along. There's a head-on collision with another car. The plaintiff's case is that the father was in the driver's seat. He then gets into the back and then gets his sons out of the vehicle by passing them to the oncoming driver who came to assist. The father then moves into the driver's seat again to assist with the mother who was trapped in the front passenger seat. Now, the first attending police officer took a a notebook entry from the driver who the plaintiff says was the father and the father says that yes he was the driver subsequent first responders come to the scene and the father is evasive about who was the driver now on the airbag is the blood of the son who the insurer says was the driver now to me when i think about the plaintiff's case i think that it makes complete sense the father's in the back helping the children getting them out of the car the son is actually catastrophically injured. He's got blood coming down his face from some dental injuries. And there's blood all over the father's hands, which was noted by first responders at the scene. And then the father's gone into the front seat to assist his wife. He's leveraged himself against the, the steering wheel. And that's how the blood has been transferred from the son on the father's hands to the steering wheel. The problem we have, and I can understand the defendant's case here, even though they were unsuccessful, is that you've given a very good description, except that the father never came to the hearing to give that evidence. So what we've got is we've got the plaintiff's blood or the son's blood on the airbag and the son has dental injuries and there's blood all over him, so it seems to make sense. And we've got the oncoming driver who is the one that gave the evidence that within 30 to 90 seconds he saw the three sons in the back seat. But what he also explains is his movements before that And he says, you know, he's had this accident. He's concerned about fire. He's concerned about his dog. He picks up his dog, walks the dog to a safe place, and then returns to the scene. So He says all that happened in like 30 to 90 seconds. But that just seems like too short to me. Anyway, I don't think it's as straightforward as Eden has presented (laughs) the plaintiff's case, but of course I'm going to say that. I presented it to (laughs) Eden. Don't we always? Some other evidence that was was there was some expert evidence about the blood and um, how it could have come to be on the airbag. And there's really two ways. One, during the impact, uh, when the airbag inflated, 
did the blood transfer directly from the driver's face? And it was the defendant's case that, uh, or the insurer's case, that it transferred directly from the plaintiff's face, which was covered in blood. But the, I guess the plaintiff's case was that, as you explained, it was transferred from the father when he went in to, to assist his wife. That's right, the plaintiff's case. And it totally makes sense that the defendant would, well, hey, they've got this blood on the airbag, which is the son's blood. And it sort of makes sense when you first get that evidence to say that, well, the son must have been the driver. Yeah. So that, that makes complete sense. Yeah. But, <laughs> and this is, where the expert more to it, yeah. this is when the expert evidence came in. Uh, there was an expert about cars and that evidence was that the blood on the airbag was actually on, if the airbag was inflated, the blood was on the rear side of the airbag, which suggests that once the airbag deflated, that's when the blood was transferred onto the airbag. There was also evidence, expert evidence, that when a car, and most people know this, when a car collides with something, the airbag inflates quickly and the seatbelt tightens, holding the driver to the driver's seat. So it would be difficult in that circumstance for the blood to transfer from the dental injuries on the airbag if the driver is restrained to the seat. Because it's only, yeah, the airbag's only inflated for, you know, 0.2 seconds, a very short amount of time. So that, yeah, I mean, there was also evidence that there was no uh, fingerprints or handprints or anything in the blood that would be consistent with transfer from the father's blood. But That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess what sometimes, you know, you've, you've got to look a bit deeper. And in this case in particular, you know, sometimes I need to take my defendant hat off and... and just <laughs> yeah. No, but the defendant's position was completely tenable when you say that the oncoming driver was at the vehicle within 90, say within 90 seconds, and that's the evidence that he gave and that was accepted and unchallenged, and that the plaintiff's or the son's blood was on the driver's seat. It just, what doesn't make sense to me is the defendant's case about how did the son then get from the driver's seat to the rear passenger seat in 90 seconds? Yeah. And then let's just say that the father did in fact drag the son from the driver's seat into the rear passenger seat when he was severely injured. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, the father may not. I mean, people panic. People do panic, yeah. The 17 or 16-year-old son was unlicensed and the father would not have known the extent of his injuries. True. He was unconscious. Or was he? Yeah, he was unconscious. Yeah, he was unconscious. Like, I mean, that's not ideal for the defendant's case either. So I guess we'll talk about what the Supreme Court said, what the trial judge said, what the Court of Appeal said, and then lastly what the High Court said. So the trial judge had the son and the mother give evidence, but the father did not come to the, the hearing and did not give evidence. The trial judge did not accept the son or the mother as witnesses of truth and did not, you know, found them non-credible, uncredible, uncredible. I don't know. Not incredible. Not incredible. <laughs> <laughs> did not accept them and therefore did not accept the plaintiff's case. That was appealed and the Court of Appeal looked at two I guess, stepped things out into two ways. So one, first looked at the credibility findings of the trial judge and did not overturn them, you know, gave the trial judge the advantage and, you know, were reserved in the way they approached that, the credibility findings, which, you know, they, they have to do. Then they looked at the circumstantial evidence and the expert evidence and in doing so found that, as Eden has, has spoken about, it's more likely than not that the father was the driver, that the plaintiff's case, uh, that the son was in the back seat is more likely than not. That issue about that 90 seconds to drag the injured son into the back seat being improbable was a factor, a big factor in that. 
at that point, the Court of Appeal has, however, applied, it seems, applied the same reservation that they did to overturning credibility findings to that circumstantial evidence, and they upheld the trial judge's decision, essentially, even though they found that there were errors and, you know, the, the, the more likely than not, the opposite was the case. Mm. So, you know, they appealed again. The son appealed again to the High Court, and that was the big issue. The big issue that the High Court grappled with was what the Court of Appeal should have done when faced with this alternative view, that second step, what should they have done? Yeah, and the High Court said that if the Court of Appeal finds that the more likely circumstance was that the father was the driver, then that should be what is found, and that is they're supposed to rehear the case. That's right. They rehear the case, they look at the evidence, they make the finding that the father was the the driver and therefore the plaintiff should succeed. Yeah, and I guess um, one thing that stuck in my mind was that we always talk about how the Court of Appeal or appellant courts need to apply, you know, they need to be careful when overturning credibility findings, but that same reservation should not be applied to circumstantial evidence or expert evidence because they're in the same position as a trial judge to make findings on that kind of evidence. They're just they're disadvantaged when it comes to credibility findings because they don't get to see the witnesses and hear their evidence and see mm. their demeanour. Um, so distinguishing between the two, those types of evidence, I think is important. And so the High Court found in favour of the Sun. Yep. And we've got this, this great guidance in these kinds of cases. So, I mean, why is this case important, Eden? Or how does it affect our day-to-day management of files? Well, I think the insurer did the right thing from the very beginning. I think it was worthwhile to do the investigations that they did. This matter would have cost a fair bit in expert evidence, just getting it ready. There were obviously five different claims arising from it. Sorry, four claims arising from it. One, which was a catastrophically injured plaintiff. So the money spent on investigating the matter was definitely worthwhile. And I think the difficulty comes in when you've got a case theory in your head, you get some evidence that supports it. There's some countervailing points but you may not give that as much weight as your own evidence. So I think the key takeaway from this is to always look at the evidence in totality. Yeah. Think about the case that you're going to be putting forward and think, does it make sense? That's right. Um, I had some advice very early on in my career about summing up your case in one to two sentences or having a case theory and having it make logical sense. You know, if it's got to be too complicated to succeed, it probably won't. And I think that's something that at some point in this case, the evidence may have started to not look as good um, mm. as it did right in the beginning. Look, you've got to take physical evidence as, you know, really strong cogent evidence. Mm. The son's blood was on the airbag and without any further facts, you think that, well, that's pretty incontrovertible that he Absolutely. must have been in the driver's seat at some point. However, when you look at that physical evidence and then you have the lay witness evidence of him arriving at the vehicle 90 seconds afterwards with the son in the back seat and the father assisting him, that doesn't add up. Yeah. And then when you have the further evidence of the plaintiff's father moving into the driver's seat to assist the trapped mother, again, when I first read the case, I thought, oh, this is open and shut. And yeah, so then- did I, but in the other. <laughs> <laughs> but you read the expert evidence then and you think, yeah, I see where this becomes like a real dispute. Yeah. Yeah. So some good times. If you've got any thoughts on that case, please let us know and we'll uh, talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Eve. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at mccabecurwood.com.au 
or visit our website to see McCabe Curlwood's full team of specialists.